Now as we come before God more particularly in his word, if you'd like to read with me, I'll be this morning in Exodus chapter 8. Our text is Exodus in chapter 8. Before we read, as always, would you please pray with me? Lord, you tell us that the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And Lord, we confess that we are that. We are the simple ones who need this light, who need this understanding. Would you shine your light on our hearts by your spirit? Help us to see, to trust, and to believe. And we ask your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take this morning these first uh, 15 verses here of Exodus chapter 8. So we'll begin here in verse 1. Actually, uh, let me back up and even clip the very last verse of chapter 7. This is the word of God. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you in your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. And so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of God. Now, we've entered here into the period of the plagues. 
And we've talked already about how these plagues come in cycles of three. This, then, is the second plague in the first cycle of the plagues on Egypt. So, after the first plague, which we talked about last week, when, uh, when the Lord turned the Nile and all the, at least above ground water into blood, not much change happened in Pharaoh from that, at least not change for the better. We're told at the end of that chapter that Pharaoh did not take this to heart, that his heart was hardened further against the Lord. So now the Nile turning into blood was a week ago, not just for us, but also for them. It's been seven days since that has happened, and now Moses is confronting Pharaoh with the next great judgment of the Lord, which is frogs. Frogs, at least when I read it, I don't know about you, frogs don't seem so bad. At least compared to the other ten plagues. I mean, I kind of like frogs myself. They're, they're certainly less eerie than turning all the water, even the water in your house, into blood. That's very Halloween-y. Uh, you know, some people keep frogs as pets, you know, in a little terrarium in their house. Uh, you know, if you sit out on your porch at night, it can be almost soothing to listen to the frogs. You know, and this week, I even got a piece of mail, which, which had a, a cartoon picture of a frog stamped on it. You know, it said, you know, have a, have a hoppy day or something like that. And, and, and we never get cute pictures of the other plagues, the other th- content of them, at least. There's, there's not cute pictures of gnats or locusts or, or boils, for goodness sake. I don't even know what that would look like. You know, I, I hope you're... <laughs> I hope your happiness boils over. That just, I, I don't know, too, too much for me. So, you know, a part of me thinks, you know, I could deal. I could deal with the frogs. The plague, though, we notice, is not the frogs themselves. It's the amount of the frogs. That's what's really supernatural about this. It's the amount of the frogs that the Lord strikes the Nile, and then out of the river comes what's described here as a swarm of frogs. I spent a summer in Alaska, and I remember there was a very short period in which uh, the salmon would spawn, and people would come for, you know, far and wide to see this event happening. It was just for a small window, and, and they would go upstream up these rivers, and it just looked like a carpet of fish like a writhing rug that you could almost walk across. That's what I imagine this was like. That Moses and and Aaron uh, stretched out their staff over the waters, and then out of the Nile comes this carpet, writhing carpet of frogs. And, And they don't just stay beside the river like you would expect frogs to do. They would stay near some body of water. They don't even just stay outside. The carpet is everywhere. The extent of it is emphasized in the text that the frogs go in your houses. So everywhere you walk, in your kitchen, in your living room, you'd have to be careful not to squish frog guts on your floor. They're in your bed. So in the morning, guess what you would wake up with stuck to your back? 
as you rolled over in the middle of the night. They're, they're even in your ovens and your kneading bowls. They, all your food is going to taste a little amphibian. The frogs are everywhere. Now, this is not deadly to the Egyptians. We haven't reached that point yet in the plagues. But it is certainly a major disruption to their lives. Something that you could not miss, that everyone would be impacted by. This is a warning shot from God to pay attention and to listen up. It's not just something you could see with your eyes. You'd be able to hear it. I mean, can you imagine millions of croaks happening? That would be deafening and probably even maddening. And, and, and the smell specifically, too, is mentioned. Not just when they're living, but once the plague is wrapping up, once the Lord has relented, uh, the frogs don't just poof and disappear. They don't go back to the Nile. Some frogs are, of course, left living in the Nile, but they're just, they roll over and croak. They die. And in verse 14, we hear, they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Heaps. Heaps. We had a, a mouse, I think, that died downstairs, probably, you know, crawled behind a fridge or somewhere, and, and died, and it smelled for a few weeks. One mouse, and we smelled it for weeks. Imagine if we had heaps of frog outside. Poor Anne. We'd help you clean that, I think. <laughs> I hope. You can, you can just imagine the stench and the appearance of piles of dead frogs. Have a hoppy day, right? We don't know, because we're not told, what uh, this impact had upon Pharaoh initially. But we do see that he, uh, he, he seems to bring in the magicians of Egypt again. Uh, that clearly something here is happening that is supernatural, so they need some sort of supernatural intervention. So in come the, the, the Egyptian magicians. But just like the last plague, the magicians are not able to undo what God has done. Of course, you would assume the Egyptians would want them to make the frogs go away, but they can't. Instead, they're able to replicate the plague to some degree, that somehow they're able to weave a few more frogs into the already thick carpet. And the experience of this, this time, is not cutting it for Pharaoh. You know, the, the copycat nature of the magicians that had happened in the previous plague might have satisfied him to an extent before, but not anymore. He now seems to recognize that his magicians, while they do have some strong power, they are not strong enough. That they've been outmatched by the God of the Hebrews. And so we see something different here than we have seen in the former plague. For the first time here, Moses calls or, uh, sorry, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back. Bring them back in, and they have a little meeting. And Pharaoh says, okay. Okay. 
Let's make a deal. You get your God to stop these frogs, and I'll do what you want and let your people go. And Moses says, Okay, say when. And Pharaoh says, Tomorrow which I know sounds strange to us. Why not today? But this is his way of saying, as soon as possible. Do this as quick as you can. And so an agreement has been struck. And that should have been the end of the plagues of Egypt. But it's not. Because Moses and the Lord, of course, keep their end of the deal. Moses prays, and the Lord stops at least the carpet from continuing to unfold upon Egypt. But Pharaoh does not keep his end of the bargain. That once the frogs are dead, Pharaoh now backs out and says, actually, nah. Actually, I'm not going to let you go. He changes his mind, and more importantly, we see that he changes his heart. We're told here that his heart is hardened, and that is now becoming a frightening pattern for Pharaoh, that his heart here is becoming harder and harder, and harder. It's like he's stacking up bricks, building a little fortress, fortifying these walls, trying to protect himself from God. And so the question that we've been asking and will be asking for these first uh, cycle of plagues here is, why is this happening? Why is Pharaoh hardening his heart? Last week, when we looked in the first plague, we saw that Pharaoh hardened his heart because he had bought into the counterfeit of the magician's power. He had listened to the power of the magicians with their secret arts. But now Pharaoh seems to be over that. It's like he has seen through all their smoke and mirrors and actual power, and and that's just not good enough. But still, his heart is not softened. Pharaoh is still stubborn toward the Lord. Why? Now, in this second plague specifically, why does Pharaoh harden his heart here? What is it here that continues to move him further down that path of destruction? We can answer that pretty simply if we look carefully. The answer to why he hardens his heart is in verse 15. Let me read it. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, that's our answer. There's a respite. There's been a relief from the frogs. Oh, the land still stinks to high heaven of dead frogs, but the surge of the plague is over. The pressure of it is off, and so now I'm off the hook. And so I can go right back to where I was before. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Have you seen that, experienced that? Do you recognize Pharaoh's mindset here in his approach to the respite? We might see this exact same pattern, for example, in addicts, those with addictions. Maybe you know someone like this. Maybe you are someone like this, by the way. Addictions can wrap around the necks of Christians as well. 
But we might see with an addict someone who's addicted to you know, drugs or pornography or alcohol or maybe even the more acceptable ones like addicted to online shopping or to affirmation and people-pleasing. That when those addictions start to go bad, when they start to stink and the person gets caught or confronted or at least can't deal with it anymore, that perhaps they may be given by someone some grace. Maybe their debt is paid. Maybe they find some support system or a second chance. I'll give you, an, I'll give you another chance and there's a respite. And out of that, sometimes we see the person crawling right back into their bed of dead frogs and the heart is hardened. It's not just people with addictions. We, we also see the same pattern in people with, who are abusers. Maybe you know one, maybe you are one. An abuser can be manipulative. A temper maybe gets out of control to the point of even becoming violent or, or physically or verbally. And it's threatening. You can risk people that you love out of this. And so an abuser often promises, I will do anything. I will change. I promise. I promise. I promise. And there's a respite. But if they're not careful, soon they're curling right back into the bed of dead frogs with a hard heart. And just in case you feel a little let off the hook, because I'm not an, I'm, I don't have an addiction and I'm not an abuser, you know that you have seen this pattern in yourself. You know it. Some, at some point in life, we feel you know, pressure, some particular pain, the grind maybe of, of life, it all begins to, to squeeze us. And so the response then is we begin to pray more. Maybe we open our Bible a little more or, you know, we, we promise God that we'll follow him or, you know, we set ourselves that we're going to please God, we're going to obey God, we're going to follow God. And, and then time passes. And whatever particular pain it was that put the pressure on begins to fade and there's a respite. And in that respite, our prayers fade, our practices fade, and our hearts can be hardened as we crawl right back into the bed of dead frogs. This is a sobering reality. And none of us wants this for ourselves or for anyone else. So then in these situations, we have to ask then, what is missing here? In each of the examples that I've mentioned, including Pharaoh's particular situation, what is missing, don't miss this, what is missing is real repentance. That's what's missing, real repentance. Everyone sins. Everyone really sins, but not everyone really repents of their sin. And that'll make a world of difference. Because whether we're repentant of our sin or not, that's the thing that's going to set us on a trajectory of whether our heart is being softened or hardened toward God. So what does real repentance look like? 
well. Remember Zacchaeus? Guy in the New Testament, days of Jesus, tax collector. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, so I've heard. And we sing little songs about him. I hope, does that song, am I the only one that knows that little song, little jingle? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. At any rate, the song is, is great, and we sing it with our kids, but it just misses the most important piece about the life and situation of Zacchaeus. So the song uh, it gets the part about him being we, the short little guy who has to climb up in the sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And at the end, Jesus says, I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. And that's the end. And we're like, yay, Jesus went to his house. Okay, you know, I suppose that's something. <laughs> I mean, but, but just because Jesus is your house guest, that itself is not a benefit to you. I mean, do you think he's going to be impressed by your hostessing skills? That he's going to come and be like, this bean dip is really something. I got to get this recipe. And you can exchange that for being saved. I mean, there's a, a guy, Simon, a Pharisee, who invites Jesus over for a meal, and he just sits and watches in his sort of like self-righteous judgment while the woman who's a sinner washes Jesus' feet. We assumed his heart is being hardened even in that moment. It doesn't really matter uh, whether Jesus is at your house or not. That's not the particular point. But the, the song stops before we get to the meat of what Jesus does, what happens at the house. And so a scripture then tells us the rest of the story. It's in uh, Luke chapter 19. If you want to read with me, I'll just read a few verses. And we know Zacchaeus was rich. It tells us that. And so um, he got rich cheating people. He stole some of their money, take a little off the top from their taxes. So surely his house was a really nice one. Uh, but at any rate, uh, here we are in Luke chapter 19. Where do I pick it up? Um, I'll start in verse 17. And when they saw it, this is Jesus now said, I'm going to your house. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Did you catch what happens here? We're seeing a glimpse into what real repentance looks like from Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is not only turning from what he has done wrong. That's part of it. But Zacchaeus, in real repentance here, also, as far as he is able, is restoring things to make them right. He is paying the cost to set things right again, and not just to, to pay back an equal amount. I'll restore it fourfold, he says. Whatever I've cheated you, you're going to get back four times as much. This isn't just a promise he's making. It's not just him saying, I will do it. He's saying, behold, I am doing it. I am doing this right now. He is writing out checks as we speak. 
we all know that actions like this certainly can be just for show. Try to make yourself look good. Try to impress somebody or, or, or prove someone that, that, you're, that you're really a good guy or a good woman, um, and that that can just be an external change without any effect on the heart. But Jesus, Jesus who sees and knows the heart, sees what's happening with Zacchaeus, and he sees this as a sign of true heart change. It's a sign of true faith. He is seeing in the actions of Zacchaeus something, the bearing of fruit that is keeping with repentance. So, hear this. Don't miss this. True faith and true repentance always come as a couple. In fact, they're conjoined twins. They're different, but they're always together. True faith and true repentance always come as a couple. So in Zacchaeus, we see not only repentance, but also faith. Which is why Jesus says, Ah, today, ah, today, salvation has come to this house. That's not true for Pharaoh. There is no salvation in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh does not have salvation. Pharaoh has respite. Pause from the hardship. And in the midst of that respite, he reveals his lack of real repentance. His repentance is false. He doesn't want to be changed. He just wants to avoid the consequence. He doesn't want everyone to be restored. He doesn't want to let the people go so that they'll be let out of slavery. He just wants himself to be restored. False repentance looks a certain way on the face, but it has no root. False repentance has no root of change. So we sometimes even see things in false repentance that we'd see in real repentance. False repentance sometimes still bears the consequence and the punishment. Pharaoh still here felt the effects of the plague. There were dead frogs in his bed too. There were dead frogs in his bread too. But even with that consequence, it did not produce real change. In his false repentance, he also, we see an acknowledgement of need even confession on some level. Pharaoh asks Moses for help. He says, plead with the Lord for me. Later, even in the text, in later plagues, he says specifically, I have sinned. Please forgive me. The Lord is right. This is confession here, saying, I'm sorry, but that's not producing change. And then we also see a promise to be different. Okay, I'll let the people go. I'll obey and I'll do what you ask, but talk is cheap. And it doesn't produce change or faith or any real obedience to the Lord. The land of Egypt nationally reeks, literally reeks, 
with the sin of Pharaoh and his unrepentance. But that is still not enough. There's an old Puritan that gets at the heart of this, Thomas Watson. I wrote this in a small little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. I'm going to read a section. This was written centuries ago, but listen, don't miss this. This is important. He writes this. Say a man has gone on long in sin, and at last God arrests him shows him what a desperate hazard he has run, and he is filled with anguish. Within a while, the tempest of the conscience is blown over, and he is quiet. And then he concludes that he is truly penitent or repentant. He's truly penitent because he has felt some bitterness in his sin. Do not be deceived. This is not repentance. Ahab and Judas had some trouble of mind. It's one thing to be a terrified sinner. It's quite another to be a repenting sinner. Sense of guilt is enough to breed terror, but an infusion of grace breeds repentance. If pain and trouble were sufficient to repentance, then the damned in hell should be most penitent, for they are most in anguish. Repentance depends upon a change of heart. There may be terror, and yet with no change of heart. Words like that can be unsettling. It can lead some of us to think some frightening things. And perhaps some of us even need to be scared by this. A lack of repentance for our sin may be a sign of a lack of faith in Jesus. Might be a sign of a hard heart that will sink you into the pits of hell itself. If that troubles you, I don't want to demean that trouble. That may be a sign of the Holy Spirit working to soften and to break through your hard heart. If it's very heavy on you, I would love to talk with you about that. But I want to be clear about something. My purpose here, right now, is not to terrify you. It is not to heap up stinking piles of guilt and fear. The point in all of this is to draw out our absolute need for grace. That is, Watson said, grace needs, or grace breeds repentance. The heart must be changed. So the goal of our time here is not to, you know, not for me to give you a little self-help. Here's a guide to repentance, 10 steps to a, to a frog-free life. Although I do hope that you take your repentance seriously, that you work to examine your heart and life, take time to search it out and to dig out sin in your heart. It is work. If it's hard work, that's actually a good sign. Don't give up on it. 
But the goal here is to lead us to Jesus, to bring us to God. Not just that Jesus will come into our house and have a little bit of bean dip, but that he'll, act, he'll actually save us of our sin, rescue us from hardness of heart, and even more than that, to actually change our lives. That we would be reborn into a real, living repentance. Don't be discouraged when it's slow. The real repentance that comes from Jesus is often gradual. It is like growing fruit on a tree. It takes a while, oftentimes, that can be complex, and it can come with a variety of setbacks. It's often even hard to see what it looks like in our own lives, and so we can be discouraged. I don't want to give the impression that repenting is just easy or quick or that it's even finished in this life. But, listen, but repentance must be real. It must be real in your life. And repentance will come if you submit yourself to follow Jesus where he leads and put your faith and trust in him. By God's grace, we must do what Pharaoh does not. We do not only seek a respite, have a happy day. We seek God himself. And God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Would you pray with me? Lord, if these things are heavy on us, they certainly are heavy upon me. Would you help us to rend our hearts and not our garments? Lord, would you produce in us a repentance that is true, that transforms us from the inside out? Lord, that we would love what you love and hate what you hate and that we would follow you Lord, would you chip away at our hard heart and transform us by your immense and powerful grace. We trust you, and we look to you always as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.